Welcome to Quick Clarity, the podcast where we talk about all things 3C. For those of you tuning in for the first time, 3C is the talentism model for understanding why confusion exists, how to turn that confusion into learning and productivity, and what happens when we ignore confusion. Each week, I talk to the founder of Talentism, Jeff Hunter, about the questions we see our clients dealing with and his latest thoughts on the state of humans, business, and the world. Okay, Jeff, I'm glad to be back in the saddle with you this week after a brief hiatus for a vacation. Um, last uh, Last we recorded our conversation together, we were talking about personal responsibility and how that really is the wedge into learning, owning one's responsibility in a situation, owning one's reaction to a situation is the way to opening the door to learning. But the other side of personal responsibility we often talk about at Talentism is uh, the system, recognizing the system in which we are operating, how we shape it, how we influence it, how we're at the effect of it. So I'm excited to get your thoughts on that today. Um, why don't you kick us off by describing what we mean when we say uh, the system and how is that a complement to or a counterpart to this idea of personal responsibility? Great. And welcome back, Angie. Yeah. So first, let's start with just a very simple definition of a system because there are entire fields of study dedicated to this and world-class thinkers like Dr. Derek Cabrera uh, about this. And so I, I certainly encourage everyone to go read deeply going all the way back to Sengi and others, there's just so much cool information there. But let's just start simply. Um, a system really is just, there's a bunch of people in an interdependent situation where there are certain rules that are being followed, whether you know the rules or not. And so if you and I are having a conversation, we're creating a system. It's a very small system. It's a system between you and I. But there are three parts to it. There's you, there's me, and there's the relationship we have between us. And that relationship actually influences both of us. So it both we are influencing the other and our belief about the relationship, the conversation we're having, everything influences us as well. So systems are incredibly complicated and they're incredibly, uh, and they produce lots of weird outcomes. We like to start with the theory that every system is perfectly designed with the outcome it produces. And there are some people who say, like, just look at whatever answer is produced and then figure out the question. Don't ask the questions to produce the answer. In other words, think in terms of what is reality, what is happening, and then try to decode what is the system that is behind it that is creating that. Um, And so... Just for the purposes of this, we can say systems follow rules, but rules aren't physical laws. Physical laws can't be broken. Gravity is always gravity. Um, But rules can be broken. They're just what should be happening. And so often when we think about the rules of a system, we are thinking in terms of black and white, like it should do this, it should do that. And a lot of times systems uh, act in ways that are very confusing to us. So 
So we're all in this world where let's say you're a founder and you're creating a business and that business is a system. It's a set of relationships you have with a bunch of stakeholders, with your employees, with your vendors, with your capital partners or investors, with your, um, let's say, landlords. It's a, your business is a system. There's a bunch of relationships, a bunch of interdependent relationships where we're affecting each other. And the difference for a leader, entrepreneur, a founder, is that you are creating part of that system. You are actually creating the system that's influencing and impacting you, where a lot of people don't have the agency or permission, especially from you, to create their own system. They're joining your system. They're saying, I'm giving up a certain level of autonomy and agency so I can be a part of this thing of yours. And I often find that leaders don't acknowledge that and they don't acknowledge the responsibilities that come along with saying, okay, I'm going to create this system. I'm asking you to volunteer to join this and that there's a certain power dynamic in this system and I'm going to have more agency and authority to shape this system than I'm going to give you. That's the very nature of a hierarchy and that's what's going on. And so, so now what happens is um, when we're talking about learning and we're talking about how you need to improve and how learning is really the root, the root cause of long-term success. And in the midst of the situation that we're all in, we all have to be learning faster and better. And the learning really starts with us. It really starts with what we're like because we are quite literally creating our reality. That's the way the brain works. We're quite literally creating our reality. And then we're responding to the reality that we're creating. So we're a little system inside ourselves. And then we're part of a much, you know, ever expanding, much bigger systems. And there are two principles and in, in, in you can design that system. You actually can affect the thing that affects you by designing the system that affects you. And so now let's talk about a couple of principles around that and let's talk about like what that means and what it means to have personal responsibility in the midst of being affected by a system, much of which you can't really control. So the first thing is you can't design around a self you don't understand. This was a quote that came up from one of our clients She's a fabulous entrepreneur and she was talking about everything she was learning in her work with talentism and her work with her clarity coach. And she was starting to understand, you know, like design is possible. I can change the system around me, but I can only change that to the extent I understand myself because the system affects me and the system is a part of me and I'm creating that system. And so I really have to start with me and I have to understand myself because mostly I'm creating this system around me through unconscious action and bias. It's not part of a plan. It's not part of, it's not part of um, a conscious, logical, thoughtful, slow-thinking process. It's happening in little bits many, many times every day in little, little movements that are compounding into a big system effect. And so the first thing is you can't design around a self you don't understand. And the second principle is you don't really understand yourself if you don't understand your system. And I think this is a really hard one for people 
to understand. And so I want to talk a little bit about that in reference to the health journey that I talked about with myself, because I think this is really important. So just to do a quick refresh, almost exactly a year ago, April 1st, 2022, I get diagnosed with diabetes. I'm not going to belabor all of that, but I get this diagnosis. And after an initial initial period of being really um, in a blizzard about that, I start to say, okay, what am I going to do about this? Because this is existential. This this will limit my time on earth, limit on my, my time with the people I love, limit my uh, limit my ability to achieve my potential. And I started thinking about myself and I think thought about my blind spots and all the things that Kurt, my coach, and Andrew, my coach, my other coach, um, all the things that they worked with me on and helped me see. But one of the things I actually started to dig very deep into is I'm like, what system have I unwittingly created that has given me diabetes? Now, the diabetes is mine, okay? It's not the systems. I am the one being affected by diabetes. Diabetes wasn't handed to me, although I have a genetic predisposition for it. No one gave it to me. I didn't know I was accepting it. But all the same, if I don't make it mine, if I make it the system's problem, if I make it my genetics problem, if I make it somebody else's problem, I can't learn. You literally can't learn if you don't accept responsibility. So I have to start at the, okay, diabetes is mine. It's affecting me. But why? Why did this occur? Why did this happen? I'm not trying to seek blame. I'm, not, I'm just trying to get the picture. And one of the things that occurred to me is uh, moving to California at the age of six. So at the age of six, I moved to California. My, well, my family moved to California. I, I went along with them. And uh, I was a very shy kid, and I was in a very strange place. We moved from New Jersey to, to California. I had no idea what was going on. Um, I didn't really have a voice in this as a six-year-old, and I'm, one day I'm showing up in a really different place. And one of my earliest memories is my dad taking me to McDonald's in order to help me feel better. He said, hey, listen, I don't think at that point we had ever been to McDonald's as a family, but there was one right around the corner. And he said, why don't we go there? And I remember ordering a McDonald's hamburger and thinking this was the best thing on the face of the earth. This was just amazing. It wasn't just that it tasted good. It was the whole experience, right? It was a reward. It was getting time with my dad. It was safety in the midst of all this change. And so I started at that point at the age of six, not knowing anything, to develop a set of beliefs about fast food and rewards and feeling good and safety and all the good feelings that came along with that. And I can literally chart different parts of my evolution as a human being against the journey of fast food. I remember the first time my dad let me get a Big Mac. I remember the first time I won a sporting event and he let me get, me, he let me get two Big Macs. I remember going either to McDonald's or Shakey's Pizza after every sporting event to celebrate wins, to console losses. Fast food became a big part of how I thought about achievement and celebration. And when I say I thought, I don't mean consciously. I mean, we all run on unconscious, on our, our unconscious mental models. Our mental models are a set of rules 
that help us make sense of experience and try to optimize experience so that we can achieve what we want to achieve. And so I developed this mental model around fast food. During the pandemic, during the two years preceding my diabetes diagnosis, which were the unhealthiest two years of my life, I felt a huge amount of stress. The company was struggling. I felt a huge responsibility to help take care of my clients who are really struggling, not only just with their business, but psychologically and existentially. I felt a big responsibility to take care of my family and to be there for them. I'm socially and physically isolated from everybody. But one of the things I could do is I could order fast food for home delivery. And I did a lot of that. I did that. I, no one else did that for me. I did that and I owned that. But it's not surprising I did that. It's not surprising that I turned to fast food as a way to understand, uh, a way to feel better. It's not surprising that when it's incredibly cheap and incredibly easy to get that high that I turned to it. And you know what's interesting? During the, during the pandemic, the system that enables obesity got a lot better at enabling obesity. And you see this in all the health numbers. Faster delivery, cheaper prices, faster turnaround. Cost per calorie, convenience per calorie. Cost going down, convenience going up, stress going up. Of course, we're going to consume more. And so in order for me to understand my health journey, I had to understand I owned it, I bought it, I bought the Big Mac, I put it in my mouth, I ate it, I felt good when I did it, I felt bad for the rest of the day after I did it. But that's all me. That's not my parents. That's not society. That's all me. But I don't judge myself for doing it because, A, there's an entire system set up to help me do it. And B, judging myself will make me want to get another Big Mac. The negative feeling of what we call the BSL, bad, stupid, lazy, the self-BSL, the diagnosis of self as being insufficient or broken or wanting is such a negative, confusing impulse in our brain, we almost inevitably turn to those uh, short-hit, sugar-high good feelings in order to overcome them. So in understanding this system, I was not placing blame, but I was seeking to understand, and I was not judging, I was seeking to understand. And so... Can I pause you for a second, Jeff? Yeah, please. So some of what's really standing out to me as you're speaking is this idea that um, at many points in our lives, there might be things we do that are, um, I'll use the word automatic. We don't recognize them as a choice. We're doing them because we've been operating in a system that uh, incentivizes or has programmed us to make that choice through time. And I think what I hear you saying is that what you're encouraging people to do is look at it as a choice, have some recognition of the system that incentivizes or programs us to choose a certain way. And rather than seeing that choice as inevitable, either because we blame the system or because it doesn't even feel like a choice, recognize that there is some agency in that choice. Um, 
but not in that moment say, oh, well, I'm making terrible choices. I must be a terrible person. Just sort of stare at that situation. There is a system. A lot of how that system got created is outside of me. In some ways, I am a product of it, but I am not totally at the mercy of it. If I can at least recognize that it's happening and there are moments of choice and in those moments, there is still agency and I have personal responsibility in those moments. Yes, well articulated. And then in the moment of agency, you have a choice. It's not just a choice between doing it or not doing it. It's a choice of allocating attention to denial of the system or impulse or improving the design so you don't get the signal in the first place. And this is a really important distinction that I think most people fail to see. So I would imagine most people reading or listening along are saying, yeah, okay, got it. Like, Yep, you put the Big Mac in your mouth. Yep, you live around the corner from a McDonald's. Yep, McDonald's makes it cheap, fast, and easy for you to be able to, you know, consume as many of their calories as you want. That's bad for your health, especially given your genetics. There's a system. There's you. Got it. So then, and and then we're saying, okay, well, then don't judge that because that'll give you more negative signal, more negative emotional signal to actually continue the bad habit, the bad behavior. Got it? People will probably buy into that. But then at the moment that that's happening, the typical thinking, and we see this in our clients all the time, the typical thinking is, okay, well, I, so obviously I'm going to have to apply attention because if I just go on autopilot, I'm just going to eat the Big Mac. Um, so what I'll do is I'll apply the attention to denial. I'm not going to eat the Big Mac. I have willpower. I have grit. I have determination. And in that moment, you have solved that immediate problem, but you've actually compounded the long-term problem. You've denied yourself the calories that would give, I would have denied myself the calories that would give me more diabetes or you know more insulin shock, all those things. But I actually haven't solved the system problem. And so the next time, I got to deny myself again. And then I got to deny myself again. And meanwhile, Every time I deny myself, it is some of the hardest attention you can spend. Taking something that is deeply ingrained in your psyche and deeply ingrained in your physiology, in the, quite, in the case of um, food cravings and diabetes, and saying, okay, I'm going to apply every ounce of will I have to keep saying no to that, is a terrible way to spend that attention. Because no matter what, it's eventually going to fail. And this is a thing we talk about all the time about why we don't buy into the rationalist conceptualization of um, willpower. Because ultimately, willpower can work in short bursts, but it doesn't change the system that causes the bad, the bad outcome. And eventually willpower, because it takes such an amazing glycogen uh, load on the brain, runs out, you get tired, you get depleted, it's the end of a long day, you just don't have it in the tank to have the willpower. You haven't yet built the mental model or the habit, you're still depending on conscious action to deny yourself a reward that matters to you, whether you want it to or not, that's just reality. And so then eventually it stops. It runs out. 
You haven't changed the system. So in that moment of deciding, of seeing the system and saying, got it, like I really want to eat a Big Mac right now, most coaching, most people are like, yeah, willpower. That's right. Deny yourself that. Clarity coaching, our approach is, okay, let's, let's try a design experiment to see if we can change the system. In my case, I knew I was not going to be able to, if a, if a Big Mac showed up on my doorstep or a Big Mac showed up in my view somewhere, probably at some point I was going to eat it. And so I did two things. I got in sync with my wife that we weren't going to order any more fast food via delivery service. We were going to force ourselves to go out and get it. And second, I consciously changed my travel routes to not go buy any fast food. Because what I needed was six months of habit building to be in the place where I didn't feel that craving. I didn't feel that need. I needed some cold turkey space and I needed that cold turkey space to occur because of the design. Because of my design, not because of my willpower. So in addition to everything you said, which I agree with, Clarity Coaching says we have to understand why this is occurring and we have to start trying design experiments so that we can actually prevent the system input that is giving you the habit or the reaction that is causing the bad outcome in the first place. Hmm. So I think what I'm hearing you say is at the moment we recognize an automatic or something that feels automatic to us is happening. There's a moment to pause and recognize I have some agency here. To exercise that agency, I have to use up some of my limited reserves, attention, uh, time, uh, resources. And I can use that to try and choose otherwise, choose against my programming, choose against the incentives of the system, which is a one-time solution and takes a lot of those reserves. Or, I don't know if this is also an and, or... I can use that attention, the resources, the reserves that I have to step back, examine the system and see what is available to me to change within the system itself. See how I can affect the incentives that'll be uh, um, affecting me, not just today, but going forward and uh, apply my attention to to that much more leveraged, uh, much more impactful, long-term impactful um, uh, system change. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so now let's take a, let's take an example. We see all the time with our clients. I have so many stories about this. I don't know if you see this. I see this all the time. And the first thing I want to talk about is a, a, a phenomenon I call solving symptoms, not systems. I see it all the time. Very common human trait, right? If you think about it, think about it from an evolutionary perspective, when we developed our prefrontal cortex, when we developed these complex brain structures as a primate, as a mammal, um, we lived in a much simpler world. We, you know, there weren't buildings, there weren't cars, there wasn't electricity, none of that stuff. There was like, I need food, I need shelter, I need sex. I need um, protection of, from others and of others, like pretty simple. And so we built up a brain that is very good at modeling that kind of world and protecting us within that world. We now have created, because of our techno- technological capability, our conceptual ability, 
language, these things, like we've created just an incredibly more complex world. And so we've got this brain that just wants to respond to very simple things in front of us and to get sort of the feedback loop of having just solved a problem. Like there's a tiger there, I run, I solve the problem. Simple, simple system. Person, tiger, action, run, saved my life. Simple, feels good to run, feels good to escape. And now we're sitting in the middle of building companies and we're building these companies according to our vision of where we want to go, the, re- the technologies that are available to us, the many, many people we depend on and who depend on us, the market conditions, talent, uh, capital, all these markets. So it's just incredibly complex, but yet we're still that primate that wants to respond to the simple signal. So you get this thing where we solve symptoms, not systems. And the way practically I see this happen, because a lot of the a lot of our clarity coaches actually sit with their clients, uh, you know, at C-suite meetings, board meetings, um, in conversations with key executives, and we see this happen all the time. A uh, an executive or somebody comes into our client, comes into the CEO, and says. I'm making this up, but we're not going to make numbers this month. I know we said we were going to do 10 million this month. We're only going to do eight. And the immediate, so this is triggering, right? First of all, I expected client, expected one thing, got another. Confusion, confusion ensues. Confusion is physiologically unpleasant. I want to get rid of the confusion. So I want to jump into action. And the action is I'm going to start solving the problem. Okay. So I'm going to start solving the problem. I've got, I'm the CEO. I've got power. I'm like juice sales more, spend more on marketing. Um, I'm just firing off solutions, right? Just one, two, three, do this, do this, do that. And what my, what the client is failing to do in that moment is understand that's not a individual problem. That's a systems problem. Your revenue and sales are a lagging indicator of a whole bunch of things that happened before then. The products you develop, how do you go to market with those products? What's the macro market for your products? You know, is it recessionary? Is it growing? It's about how clear you were as CEO and as leader about what you wanted and the design for getting that. There's all sorts of things that have to add up to get to that moment of successful sales or not sales. But when we get that signal as a leader that we're failing, when we get that signal as a leader that we're failing, then we jump into problem solving. And what's the net effect of that? First of all, no learning, zero. The no diagnosis to figure out what exactly has gone on and why that happened. So therefore, there can't be any learning. Actually, no trust building because nobody's taking responsibility for anything. This is the SVB thing we talked about last time. Like, Nobody takes any responsibility, trust roads, because somebody did something and that led to this case. So like who takes responsibility? So there's trust erosion. And then the other thing is it actually produces a ton of waste because it's unlikely the CEO has all the information needed to be really good in that moment of problem solving. The CEO or the leader's responsibility is the system, not the symptom. Assuming you're more than just like five people in a garage, there's a system 
and the system is producing those results, and you are responsible for designing, diagnosing, and evolving that system. But you can't do that if you don't take responsibility for the part you had in that, personal responsibility for the part you had in that. And you can't solve it if you actually don't diagnose at the system level and deploy fixes at the system level. If instead you dive into the shiny object of the immediate threat and all the problem solving, nothing improves. And not only does nothing improve, but you actually generally take a lot of actions that are wasteful. Waste time, waste capital, waste attention, your three most precious resources. So this is an example of what we're talking about in the symptom. You as CEO have created something. You created a business. The business has a lot of stakeholders. You are choosing goals that are increasingly more complex, more difficult, and actually at higher risk over time. That's what you're doing. And you're making a bunch of design decisions and system level decisions about how you're going to get that done. You're hiring people into jobs. You're defining strategies. You're picking products. You're building a system that you're expecting to produce a certain output. And when that output doesn't happen, you have to start with you and understand you designed that system and you have to fix it at the system level or at the very least learn at the system level, the design level. What did we expect to happen? What actually happened? And what part of the design or the system didn't achieve what we thought it was? And what did we learn in there? And what did I as CEO and designer learn there? So that's a great example of where we see people all the time jump into, uh, jump into trying to solve symptoms, not systems. You know, Jeff, one of the reasons I can imagine it feels very natural to jump to solutioning the problem in front of, um, in front of you uh, is uh, for, for a lot of fast-moving founders and high-growth organizations, being able to quickly come up with solutions is how they got to where they are. And I also think this uh, sort of stepping back, taking responsibility for the system, diagnosing failures at the system level is challenging because so many times the systems are, if not invisible, then implicit. It's not as though a CEO sat down and sketched out the architecture in most cases of the system. It was a compounded set of decisions over time, hiring decisions, org decisions, et cetera. And so I wonder if you can guide us through what it looks like once uh, we sort of get an output signal, hey, something didn't happen the way we expected, um, to actually do that investigation at the system level, to, in, to, to make uh, explicit the implicit system and think about how to start interrogating the system. Absolutely. So let's start simply so there's a discipline to this. There's a set of frameworks, thinking, and application of that thinking that uh, talentism specializes in and deploys through a number of means, one of which is clarity coaching. And so the first thing, just like I said in the episode where I talked about my health, I had to go get help because everything you're saying, Angie, is absolutely true. Most people, if not all people, have designed their system unconsciously. A bunch of small compounding uh, decisions that add up into a system effect and output. And to sit there at a point where you're like, oh, wow, I'm listening to this podcast or reading this transcript. And now I'm seeing, okay, I'm open to the fact I've created the mess 
that I'm in the middle of. And that mess is making me worse. It's lowering my ability to make good decisions. It's doing a lot of things that are making me worse. It's taking me away from what I could be good at, my potential. Taking me away from being an excellent CEO. I can understand that. But Angie, to your question, like, okay, now what? What do I do? And the first thing I would say is like, help is available and clarity coaches can show you how to do that. A clarity coach isn't just, you know, just like I was talking about Kurt in my episode, Kurt wasn't just like saying, talking about, let's do this, let's do that. Sometimes that's what he did. But he was teaching me how to think about my health system. He was teaching me how to think about all the things that were impacting my health, all the habits I had that were limiting my potential, all the ways I was thinking about my identity, thinking about who I am and what I care about that was just flat wrong. He was helping me decode all those things and see them. And while he was doing that, he was actually teaching me how to do that myself. And so the first step is like, there is no simple There's no like literally I'll give you the three steps and then you're going to have the simple diagnostic. Help is available. A clarity coach is somebody who can do this with you and help you do it for yourself over time. That's the first thing. The second thing is in order to get to that point, you have to accept the reality that you created a system that is turning out bad results. And by bad, I'm not making a moral judgment here. I'm like, you thought you'd get one thing and you got another. In many ways, I think that's good because I think that's how you learn, right? You create a hypothesis about the future. We call those hypotheses plans and the plans and budgets. Those are just hypotheses about the future, educated guesses about what's going to happen. When you spend a certain amount of money, you'll get a a certain amount of output. And then we start working the plan and things turn out differently than we expect. And we become confused because we expect it to one thing, we experience another. And we believe that confusion is the root of all learning. And so those aren't bad outcomes. Those are, those are gold. They're unrefined gold, but they're gold. And you got to refine them into value. You got to refine them into clarity. So the first thing you got to do is sit there and say, okay, confusion isn't bad. It's good. There's a system level thing here. I own it, but I don't know what it is. So that's hard. Hard to feel like I'm responsible for something I'm not good at but it happens every day. Might as well just admit it and say, yep, okay, I'm responsible for this, but I don't know what to do about it. And then get help. Now, in the meantime, while you're getting help, just ask questions before you start giving solutions. Okay, first question I always like to ask is, how should this have worked? What is the design? Because a lot of times what happens is people think they, so people think that things should be running a certain way and it ain't running that way. I, I encounter this at least five, six times a week in my work with people. They'll say, you know, uh, I don't know, we failed to file our S1 on time or something. Sometimes it could be really, really bad. And I'm like, okay, um, how is it supposed to work? And then they say, okay, well, you know, the corporate controller does this and the CFO does this, da, 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 da. I say, great. Um, Are you sure everybody thinks it should work that way? They're like, yeah, of course, I've talked about it. I'm like, if you don't have evidence, rock solid evidence, that everyone's in sync on how it should work, it is safe to assume 
people are confused or out of sync about how it should work. That is the first rock I always turn over. The out of syncness when the leader is feels confident or in certainty that everything's crystal clear, it's obvious, everybody's in sync. Those things are rarely true, and you can turn that rock over first. When you find out that people aren't in sync or they're super confused about how things should work, you're going to have to take time to articulate what you believe again and check to whether people are really tracking. And you're probably going to have to go through that articulation six, seven, I don't know, 10 times, a lot. You're going to have to go through it a lot. And every leader I've met, uh, I've worked with, every founder, um, you're so right. Like they got to where they are typically by, they have not gotten to where they are by being good managers. They got to where they were with product vision, sales ability, strategy. They didn't get there by being good managers. And so when I tell somebody, you're going to have to go through this exercise of doing the like how things should work loop seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times, you just see the blood drain from their face. They're like, that feels like such a waste of time. Yeah, but that is, in fact, how human beings work. That is, in fact, what human beings need to do in order to coordinate well. It's the root of all good change management. It's the root of all great leadership. Like the constant refrain of where we are going, the constant refrain of how it should work, the constant refrain of what we value, just repeat it again and again and again. Now, some people we've worked at have said like, Look, I'm never going to develop that habit. I hate that. I'm never going to develop that habit. And I say, great, let's create a design that does that so you don't have to. You don't, doesn't mean that you're going to have to do it. You just have to make sure it gets done. And so we can create a different system that makes sure that people have the constant refrain so that you don't have to say it. But the first thing you have to understand is that is needed and you have created a system that didn't prioritize that or didn't highlight that or incentivize that. And so, of course, you're getting the bad results you're getting because people aren't in sync, and that's not their fault. It was your responsibility to get them in sync. So understand that about yourself. Accept that about yourself. Change the design so someone else can do that who actually is good at it. That's an example of what you can do in that moment. But again. Mid to long term, the fastest solution is to get help from somebody who's good at this. I think uh, two things that you said there are really sticking out to me. Um, One is that it's difficult to do this alone. And I think that's just, uh, it's it's such a simple but um, powerful reminder that um, when we're trying to solve problems, we might try and use, you know, the tools at our disposal and our cleverness and the information we have. But when we're trying to see ourselves and how we may have been at the heart of a system that yielded that problem and really diagnose well our piece of it, that's hard to do on our own, right? That requires somebody who can give us some perspective on ourselves that we may not be able to get um, and, and some perspective on the system we're sitting inside of um, that we may not be able to perceive as clearly. So I think that number one that really stuck out to me and 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 what it means to to get the help of a of a trained clarity coach and then the second thing i heard you say is 
um, a really easy way to start to uncover what even is the system that I might not be seeing? What is sort of the implicit system that I have created is to test whether the things I thought were obvious are actually obvious. The things that I thought everyone was agreement on, they're actually in agreement on. Because in uncovering that not obviousness and in uncovering that disagreement, I have a, a chance of understanding where are their dependencies in my system? Where have I created something where I believe I am uh, getting people aligned, I am putting things on the right track, and that's not actually the case. So both of those things really stuck out to me as you were speaking. Yeah, awesome. That's, that's exactly right. So help is needed. By the way, being a, being a founder, the CEO, a high-growth executive, whatever it is, these positions are really hard. And you shouldn't have to do it by yourself. But you do, so you need help, and it's okay to get help. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about is this. Um, actually, again, I don't. I, I think others see this a lot. I've talked to other coaches who see this. There's a personal uh, preference, a habit of mind, a style that many leaders we work with have that causes dramatic system effects that then they are completely bumfuzzled by. And this uh, this tendency is conflict avoidance. So human beings, just taking a step back, human beings are largely a conflict avoidance species. Hard to hard to recognize that in the you know in the world of war and and all these terrible things. But really we're a fairly conflict avoidance species. And that makes sense because we are a social species. And so it's far better to go along to get along than it is to be in conflict. But that tends to create in us a desire to not say difficult things to people who could benefit from our perspective. And we just broadly call this conflict avoidant behavior. When leaders are conflict avoidant, they don't give feedback, they don't share their feelings, they don't share their perspectives, they don't engage in the difficult conversations to move something forward. And so learning doesn't happen. Now, what is the net effect of that? This is something that is fascinating. At one point, I was working with, I think, roughly about 10 high-growth companies at the same time, and I think about seven or eight of the CEOs were super conflict-avoidant. And I tried to work their financials, work there because um, they would give me their monthly financials so I could sort of look through how things were going, what those lagging indicators were saying. And I formed a correlation between the degree of conflict avoidance and the amount of money wasted. It was a huge system effect. Now, this wasn't scientific, and I'm not pretending it's science, but the correlation was pretty interesting. The more the CEO or leader chose to avoid diff what they considered difficult conversations, the more they spent money to overcome the problem. Typically, the way they spent that money is they would layer somebody. That's expensive. They would divide responsibilities up, sort of helter-skelter, more executive hires. They would put more people on the team to try to give support to the, air quote, failing person, also expensive. They would start to discount product launches in their plans 
They would start to backpedal on commitments to the board, all just to avoid the conflict. So what they were doing is from this very personal place that they either couldn't see or actually through our coaching were seeing very clearly but couldn't accept and wouldn't work on, they were creating a system of waste. In all of this work, in all of this hiring extra people and delaying plans and not launching products, and all of that was centered in a system that was created where not only the CEO, but other people started to get the signal, hey, don't make waves. And if you don't make waves, then, you know, you can get along here because the CEO isn't going to hold you accountable for that. They're not going to call that out because they're doing it too. And so it started to develop this culture of waste and this um, business that literally didn't learn anything from making these big financial decisions, big hires, big product delays, all these things. And so again, what would happen is an individual who couldn't see themselves, couldn't get the clarity about themselves, couldn't design a system around themselves because they refused to actually understand this about themselves, then the system they created creates tons of waste and problems, just a ton of waste and problems, which triggered my clients significantly. They were like, why are we wasting so much money, et cetera? And then that would make them more overwhelmed and more conflict avoidant because they just felt like they couldn't talk to anybody because nobody got it. Because they couldn't put themselves in the center of the picture, because they couldn't take responsibility for that, because they wouldn't be willing to design around that conflict avoidance because they thought it was an insufficiency, which should be clear, it cost them a lot, it wasn't great, but because they judged it, because they blamed themselves for it, it became another source of confusion. They wanted to avoid it because it was painful, so they didn't do anything about it. They didn't pursue the designs, they didn't improve. So the waste got built into the system, which created more bad outcomes, which then put them more in conflict and more conflict avoidance. And the system spins down until the music stops and, and you got to sit down and there are not enough chairs or the cash runs out. So this is another way where people have to take, leaders have to take personal responsibility for what they're like in the systems they create and that those systems then make them worse and limit their potential. I'm not even sure I can summarize that better than you did. I'm going to try and reflect back some of the points that are really sticking with me. The first is, it's just, it's just something to look for, I think, almost a heuristic that leaders can use to look at their own behavior, which is, where is my unwillingness to deal with something costing me money? And in this case, the common thing that you're calling out is conflict avoidance. And I don't think you're saying that real a-hole CEOs save money, right? No, no. The ones who are berating or loud or angry. That's right. I think you're saying the ones who can stare at what is uncomfortable for them, take responsibility for that discomfort, and deal with the issue with sufficient personal responsibility, compassion, but also honesty and accountability about what's actually going on. So that first heuristic is, is for everybody to do a little reflection and say, where is something that I'm not dealing with costing my organization time and money? 
Um, and I think that's just sort of helpful for, for people wanting to do a little bit of reflection on this. And then I think I'm hearing you say that actually being able to uh, reflect on that, what's uncomfortable, it's difficult because it can feel shameful. There's almost this extra layer of not wanting to deal with it because if it has been costing the organization money, if it feels like a deficiency, uh, there's a tendency to want to push it down even more. So there's sort of an extra difficulty of being able to access and deal with the behavior. And that sounds like another reason to, to seek help, to seek somebody who you've hired specifically because they're trusted to talk to about these things. Yes, yes. Great, great summary. And just to be clear, I'm so glad you brought the point up. I have had many clients who, as you say, are complete a-holes. They're arrogant. They waste a ton of money. They waste a ton of attention. They, they are just waste machines. So it's not the conflict avoidance. The opposite of conflict avoidance is the secret to success. Anytime someone is not willing to see themselves clearly, design a system based on what they're like in order to achieve those achieve goals and deal with the outcomes of that system and put themselves as personally responsible for it, but see it at the system level, they are going to waste time, money, and attention. It's just a given. It's not a maybe, it's a definite. No matter, I've worked with companies that have been so incredibly lucky on product market fit, go to market, market timing, et cetera. And they seem like they just, it seems like they can make no mistakes. All they do is keep launching new products fast and it keeps going up and up and up and the revenue goes up and the funding goes up and the music always stops. And when it stops, it's not just because of the macro market. It's not just because something that was outside of your control happened and you have to deal with it. It's because all the way along, you were ignoring all the stuff that created waste in the system. Always. And then at the point the music stops, you have to deal with those problems. And those problems have been building for a long time. They've really ingrained themselves in people's thinking. And trying to unwind it is super expensive. The longer you wait on a problem, the more expensive it is to deal with. Well, I think this is a good place to ask you, Jeff, um, if there's anything you want to offer as a, a concluding thought or, or anything we didn't get to cover yet in today's conversation. Sure. Don't take your kids to McDonald's. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Whoops. Okay. So how about plan B is, no, um, my takeaway is like, look, this is very, very difficult. It's super difficult to deal with the fact that you are creating a system that's upending you that's preventing you from being the best version of you you can be, achieving your potential. I get it. Man, this stuff is really hard. If you're building a company, leading a group of people, pursuing a bold vision, it's lonely business and it feels terrible. I understand that. Boy, do I understand that every day. But it is a solvable problem. We have created a system to solve it. It's going to require some simple but difficult things like accepting responsibility for what you've done and why you did it and then designing your way to success. But it's possible. Thousands of people have done it and you can do it too. All right. Thank you for that, Jeff. Thank you, Angie. Always a pleasure. <laughs>